Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 91, and I'm out here where I didn't expect to be, and I will explain in this episode. We're going to talk about why you might want a van versus an RV or an RV versus a van, a product review of the Gojo manual Keurig device. We're going to talk about how to get yourself out of trouble when you break down, foreshadowing, and we're going to talk about a place to visit where you can float on water in your van. Hello everyone, welcome back. This time I thought I would talk about why vans are different than RVs and why you should get a van instead of an RV or vice versa. I'm in a field of RVs now, but there are some vans here, or at least there were. Maybe they bugged out already. Oh yeah, there's a nice van over there. I'm at a dark sky event. It's not very dark right now, but these people came here to do astronomy in Colorado. It's called the Rocky Mountain Star Stare. And I talked about the fact that I was heading here last week. Well, now I'm here and they're hanging out in RVs. Gentleman over here has his generator running and it's fine, that's allowed here. And it, this is dry camping. So why is everyone here in an RV? Why aren't folks in vans? There's a number of reasons why you would want an RV over a van. First off is you can just buy them. You can just go buy an RV. It comes with a manual. It comes with help. It comes with support. You know, you can go have it repaired places. RVs are a known quantity. People are comfortable with them. And out here in Colorado, RVs are pretty common. Lots of people have RVs. So it's just the thing that people would automatically think of if they were campers. They would go to a campground and they maybe they brought a tent and a pickup truck and what they saw was RVs and they thought, well, we should get an RV. The van folks are a little different. Maybe they already have a van or maybe they've got caught up in the van life movement, whatever, and they've decided that, yeah, I want to do a van. Two main reasons for going with a van. Number one, cost. You can build out a van for very, very little money. And yeah, it'll be essentially a rolling tent, but there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I don't know if he's still here, but there was a gentleman over here who came to this event in a U-Haul van. He just rented the van, filled it up with stuff, and he had a van camper for the weekend. I think that's a great idea. He basically paid for his accommodations by renting a vehicle that he had to do anyway to get here. That's very smart. Why didn't he rent an RV? Oh, probably because it would cost about 10% as much to rent a van as it would to rent an RV. So there is a cost factor associated with vans. Now, don't get me wrong, you can spend a lot of money on a van. You know, some of the Airstream vans, uh, Class B RVs, cost as much as $225,000. So hey, if you want to spend money on a van, there are people that will take it. But you get to spend as much as you want, and that leads us to point number two. You make a van exactly what you want. If you buy an RV, it's going to be what the RV manufacturer thought you wanted. A van, well, you get to pick exactly what you put in it. Want a bathroom? You can have a bathroom. Don't want a bathroom? You don't have to have a bathroom. You want a dark room so you can process photos? Not that I've ever seen that in a van, but yeah, you can have that. Do you want to sharpen ice skates in your van? You can have that too. I mean, I haven't seen anyone do that either, but heck, I did see a guy who made horseshoes in his van. He was a farrier and his van was an old Chevy and behind the driver's seat, he had a bed, but behind that, he had a forge and he would actually alter horseshoes and then shoe the horses right out of the back of his van. He couldn't have done that in an RV, at least not without heavily modifying it. And at that point, why not just have a van? And another thing about vans is that they're smaller. 
And while people, when they're specking out their dream van, are often looking at the longest, extended, tallest, biggest vans they can possibly get, there's a lot to be said for having a smaller van. You can go more places. You can park more easily. It's really hard to park most RVs. It's only the very smallest of RVs that will fit in a normal parking space. I haven't seen any RVs here that would park in a normal parking space. And of course, there's the stealth factor. My last van was pretty stealth. You can make a van pretty stealth. There is no such thing as a stealth RV. It, it isn't a thing. <laughs> and there is a community aspect to things as well. RV people and van people, well, sometimes they're a bit different. There's tons of overlap and there are no rules, but RV people tend to like to go to campgrounds and enjoy the environment of campgrounds. They like the kind of pop-up neighborhood that they've created. They're friendly with their neighbors, their kids play together. It's a fun time for them. And van people can do that too, but van people also tend to like want to be alone a lot of the time or want to be with other people who have built out vans. Van people tend to come in different groups as well. You've got the younger van people and you've got the older van people and they mix, but you know, not always. RVers tend to be either families or retired people. You'll find a lot fewer families in vans simply because there isn't as much space. Sure, you'll find families of six in a van. I don't know how they do it, but they do. But you're much, much more likely to see them in a bunkhouse trailer. So if you're listening to this or watching this, you are a van person, most likely. But when should you consider an RV? Well, if you have a lot of people, an RV does make more sense. I mean, sure, you can build out a bunkhouse yourself. You can add cots and all that. But the extra space of an RV, the extra width, makes a huge difference when you have a family. And I would recommend that if you have more than two kids, or two kids and some dogs, take a look at RVs. You can get a Class C, it'll be a van front and it'll be an RV back and you'll get some of the van-like feel to that, but you're gonna be much happier with the space. And then if you're in an RV, but you're afraid to drive it anywhere because it's so big and it's so hard to park and it gets such crappy gas mileage, well, why not consider a van? This is especially true if it's just you or if it's just you and a partner. A van might actually fit your lifestyle better. Imagine being able to park at the front row at the supermarket rather than just all the way out where you're out there in the boonies by the dumpsters and the pallets of recycled cardboard. No, you get to park wherever you want if you have a van. And imagine being able to take your rig into the dealer or into, say, a Jiffy Lube and then being able to deal with it. Most RVs, you can't take to Jiffy Lube because they won't fit in the bays. So, again, there are pros and cons to both. But if you're considering van life, take a moment to see why you want a van instead of an RV. Okay, there are aesthetic things, there are cultural things, there is an RV vibe and there is a van vibe and they're different and you're probably attracted to the van vibe. I get that. But at a practical level, there are times when an RV will make more sense than a van. And obviously, there are times when the opposite is true. Tech Talk. Do you want a microwave in your van. So I was of the mind that no, you don't want a microwave in your van because they use up a lot of space and they use up a lot of power. And I've watched a lot of videos where people actually remove their microwaves because they wanted the space. And I figured, no, microwaves don't make any sense in a van unless you have a really large van or a school bus, you know, a school bus, you can do anything in a school bus. But 
I like microwaves. <laughs> when I'm in the condo, I cook a lot in the microwave and they're very convenient. You can do things with them that aren't expected, like you can warm up washcloths and things like that. So they're not only for cooking. And I thought, well, I'm going to build out this ambulance a little bit different than my last van. I'm going to have a bigger battery and I put in a 2000 watt pure sine inverter. So why not have a microwave? Well, now that I've actually done a trip with the microwave, I can give you the story of what it's like to travel with the microwave. So even though I have a 200 amp hour lithium battery and I have a 2000 watt pure sine inverter, the microwave, which is 900 watts output, that's output, is still kind of a burden. Now, microwave ovens have an output rating, and that's what you'll see when you're shopping for them. It'll say 900 watts, 1,000 watts, 1,100 watts, whatever. But they use a lot more power than that. They use maybe 25, 50% more power than that, especially on starting up. So my 2,000 watt inverter should be able to handle it with no problem. But I find that if my battery is a little bit low, the voltage drop is enough that the inverter doesn't like it and it starts beeping and it starts turning off and turning on and ultimately it still cooks my food, but it's kind of a, an obnoxious sound. If I use the microwave when I have some solar coming in or when I'm driving, not really driving, but when I have the engine running, then it's not so bad. Then I've got that extra voltage coming in and that kind of offsets it. Now. They do make a 600 watt. Uh, if you look on Amazon, there's a commercial chef 600 watt microwave. Honestly, I think that is probably the best microwave for van life folks because it uses the least amount of power. And don't get fooled into thinking that, oh, I'll just put it on medium and use half power. That isn't how microwaves work. They do a thing called time slicing, which is they're on full blast and then off and then on and off. That's how they work. I have a whole video about this on YouTube. So. Yeah, uh, I do like having it. I like being able to make popcorn. I've used it to warm up washcloths for kind of a sponge bath situation. I've used it to cook some frozen food. I've got a big freezer now. And the ability to bring frozen food with me has actually opened up a whole lot of options too. So yes, you can have a microwave in your van, but you have to consider that you're going to have to put out some money for batteries and inverter, and it's not going to be exactly like using it at home. You're going to have to plan, because when you use the thing, it's going to use up a ton of power, and say, in the morning before the solars come on, that is not the best time. Product review. Hey, I'm inside the van, and it's a mess, but... I can have coffee in the morning and that's what I like to do. Now if you've been following for a long time, you know that my coffee of choice is yes, Starbucks Instant. And I know many of you have frowned upon me for that, but I have upgraded the game. I am now making coffee in something you hate even more. That's right, I am now making Keurig coffee in my van. But wait, but wait, it's a little different. I'm using a product called the MyJoe, and it is a manual Keurig device. It uses the Keurig pods, you fill it with hot water, and it has a hand pump that will pressurize the hot water to go through the coffee pods, which is really all a Keurig does. And it makes a decent cup of coffee. You can put whatever pod you want in there, it's very easy to clean up, and I really think this thing works pretty well. It's about 30 bucks, I'll have a link in the show notes, of course. 
And hey, if you are the kind of person who wants to switch out what kind of coffee they have during the day, or maybe you are with other people and one person wants decaf and one person wants hazelnut or whatever, the Keurig has always been a great solution for that. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh no, those plastic pods are going to destroy the world. Well, guess what? It comes with a little coffee basket so you don't have to use the plastic pods. You can just fill it with coffee, this little thingy, and then use that and you get the same kind of coffee. The only drawback is that you then have to clean that little thing out. It's another easy way to make coffee in the van. Is it as good as an AeroPress? I don't know, I've never actually tried an AeroPress, but it's a whole lot cheaper and it's kind of the same idea. So again, the link is in the show notes. I know not everyone likes scary coffee, but hey, for me, it works pretty well, and this is just another option you have to get your cup of morning joe. Resource recommendation. I've talked about this before, and I'm gonna keep talking about it because it is my number one go-to app for finding interesting stuff to do anywhere, and it's Roadside America. Roadside America is a website that's free, you can search on it, and they list every weird, unusual roadside attraction, ostensibly, everywhere in the United States and most of Canada. And they have a great combination of crowdsourcing and professionally reviewed things. I find all kinds of interesting things with Roadside America. Now, I have the app. The app is not free. In fact, the app is kind of expensive. When you download the app, you pay, I think it's $2.99, and then you unlock a region, and then you can see everything in that region. But if you want to do the whole US, which for somebody who's driving around like I am, you definitely want, it costs about 10 bucks. But it's oh so worth it. You can keep track of the sites you visit, you can add your own photos and commentary and stuff, and the guys who run the Roadside America site, actually used to have a TV show, they're actually pretty friendly. They're very happy to have your contributions and talk with you and stuff. So if you are traveling somewhere, it doesn't matter how boring it is, and you're looking for something to do, check Roadside America. And if you use it a lot, go ahead and get the app. It's a lot more convenient. Yes, there are other sites like Atlas Obscura that do this, but this is different. It's nice, it's quick, it's more inclusive, and I absolutely love it. A place to visit. I'm in a place to visit right now. I'm in a field in Gardner, Colorado, but the place I want to talk about today, it's actually two places. It's in Brookfield, Vermont. And this is right off of I-89, the big interstate, one of two big interstates in the state. And it's called the Floating Bridge. And you might ask, why is it called the Floating Bridge? And I will answer, because it's a bridge that floats. Now for years, I mean, this thing's been there forever. It's a big pond and they wanted to get from one side to the other without having to go around in the marshy areas, so they built a bridge across it. And the easiest, simplest way to build a bridge across a pond for them was to make it float. So they put all these barrels in and then built planks across it and they had their floating bridge. And they would walk across it and then eventually they would take their horses across it and then their wagons and then their automobiles. Now when I first went across this bridge about 2004, it was uh, an interesting experience because the floating was, well, maybe not perfect. In fact, driving across in my F-150 that I had at the time, I remember my bumpers getting wet because the bridge would sink as you went across it. Well, that sinking got to be a little too severe, so they closed the bridge for vehicle traffic, 
and then people were just walking across. But it was such a beloved landmark that they actually just reopened it again for vehicular traffic. Now, I haven't been there, but I have been told that the bridge now floats up quite high and that you can drive across and be completely dry. And the bridge doesn't actually go anywhere. It just dead ends on the other side of the pond. But if you're ever in Vermont, I think it's probably worth a stop. I mean, it's kind of a unique thing to drive across a floating bridge. But wait, there's more. If you act now, you can also see a truly bizarre thing that should be and is actually in Roadside America. In fact, I will link the Roadside America link to this thing in the description. And, well, it, it's a dock. And they're not that uncommon in Vermont, except this dock is on a hill nowhere near any water. You drive up this hill, and when you look to the right, you see a complete dock with a life preserver and some fishing rods hanging on it and a pier, and then off the side is a fishing boat. It looks exactly like you would expect to see maybe on the Massachusetts shore, except it's in Vermont on a hill and there's no water. And I imagine in the winter, it actually looks like there is water. I don't know who built this. I don't know why they built it. It's on private property, so you, you can't just go wander about there. But it is absolutely great for a photo, and it's certainly something worth driving by if you're in the area. Again, this is right off of I-89. If you're driving through Vermont, you're probably going to be I-89. Take a half hour or an hour and go check these things out. They're pretty cool. <laughs> Another bonus, if you look very carefully by the boat and the dock, you'll see a golf course hole. Just one. It's a one-hole golf course. Clearly, somebody living in that area is really enjoying their life. Well, I'm in a very pretty spot. I am right outside Great Sand Dune National Park here in Hooper, Colorado. There's some strange structure over there. But uh, I'm kind of not really here. Um, let me explain. I mean, I'm here, but well, I'm <laughs> broke down. <laughs> yeah, all right, so here I am. I'm in the middle of being broken down and I'm gonna do a podcast because why the heck not? I don't know how I'm gonna solve this. I don't know how I'm gonna get home or get to my next destination, which is supposed to be Colorado Springs, but Having been in this situation before, I thought maybe it would be useful to have a little chat about what to do when you break down. And I'm in the middle of it right now. So, first, stop, find a safe place, pull over, and take a beat. Just take a moment. Unless you're on fire or you're in some kind of a danger, you have time to take a beat. That will give your body a chance to stop reacting and to start thinking and to start working the problem because that's really what you're going to do. Now not everybody's a troubleshooter, okay? So there's two different ways to approach this. If you're not the troubleshooting kind, if you're just into van life for the experience but not necessarily the building part, I totally get that and that's legit. Then you're looking for help. If you're in that situation, you're looking for a helper and you probably should have something like AAA or something like that, although lots of caveats about AAA that I've talked about in the past. That is your goal. Find a way to communicate with whomever is going to help you out. That's what you're trying to do. 
Uh, that isn't my case. I'm much more of the fixer kind of a person. I, I don't want help. <laughs> I mean, unless somebody can appear with the part I need, I don't need any help. Now, um, the very most important thing is you have to find cell phone connectivity, right? Uh, that's how you're going to get help most likely. If your vehicle isn't drivable, well, start figuring out where you're most likely to get cell phone service. And don't be afraid to flag people down. Most people are nice. Most people want to help. But just keep focused on the fact that you're trying to communicate with someone and you're trying to stay safe. That is what you're doing. Now, if you're like me and you're one of the troubleshooting people, well, it's time to enter some troubleshooting methodology. Number one most important thing, I highly recommend that you have a scanner with you. I've talked about the scanners in the past. They've saved me a bunch of money and time and headache because as soon as something goes wrong, well, I want to know what it is. In this case, I noticed that I didn't have any power going over a hill. I mean, I'm in Colorado. See that? Colorado's not flat. <laughs> And uh, I need to be able to go over hills. So um, there weren't any engine lights or anything because that apparently is only sometimes. But I did have a scanner. So I pulled over and ran the scanner and I got code P0299, which is turbo underboost. Uh, okay, turbo underboost. What does that mean? Ah! Ah! Sorry, small sandstorm. <laughs> ah, van life is great. Anyway, what does turbo underboost mean? Now, we're not talking about how to fix this problem with you. I'm talking about how to troubleshoot. Well, you got to figure out what that means. And the places you can figure that out are on Google, of course. If you Google any engine code, it's going to come up and tell you what the problem is. You're going to have to sort through stuff and you're going to have to find your vehicle. And then what I like to do is take that and go to YouTube where you can see people working on the problem. Now, in my case, that code means that basically the turbo's leaking somewhere. It's leaking air, it's le well, exhaust gases. It's leaking pressure. It's not leaking oil, it's not leaking anything bad. And it could be a simple fix. So, I spent probably half an hour just watching YouTube videos about how the turbo system works. And then I picked out the things that were the easiest candidates. Now, if the turbo's blown, which is like a $2,500 part, I'm screwed. I'm just screwed. I'm hundreds of miles from the nearest Mercedes-Benz dealer. There's nothing I can do. But rather than dwell on that, I started to look at the things that I could fix. And there's a number of hoses that could have been burst, and there's a resonator that could have cracked. That stuff, I could deal with. And as it turned out, when I crawled under the van, I saw a very easy-to-get-at hose that had separated from its coupler. And in fact, that's what my problem was. And I know it is because when I start driving, I can hear this big hiss of air that I've never heard before. And the faster I go, it goes like that. And that's the turbo gases escaping from this hose. And then the engine, and this is the problem I'm having right now, is that the engine will detect that and then go into limp mode. And that means I can't travel at highway speeds. I really can't go over mountains at all. And I've got to figure out what I'm going to do about that right now. And I don't know. I stopped to do a podcast. Because one of the most important things about troubleshooting or anything is just don't panic. I mean, think about it. Okay, here I am. I am out here in the middle of nowhere. But I've got a van with me. <laughs> that has like three weeks of supply of food and water and a bed and entertainment. I even have cell phone service. I mean, if I had to sit here for a week and wait for a UPS truck, I'd be okay. 
really don't want to do that. But if I had to, I'd be fine. Don't panic. Treat it like an adventure. And, you know, you stop and make a blog post about it. Stop and be mindful. That's not the right word. Be present in the moment of the problem. Yeah, you want to get that problem over with. You want to solve it. But when you're in the moment of the problem, it's kind of a rarefied state. And it can be a little bit enjoyable being in that state of not knowing whether you're going to be back on the road in five minutes or this is just the very beginning of a whole TV mini-series of adventures. What's it going to be for me? I don't know, but you will as soon as I do. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to episode 91. I really appreciate it and I really appreciate the feedback I've gotten. I'm going to keep trying to incorporate that and make this a better product and give you what you want. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. And until next time, remember the words of that anonymous poet. Anonymous. The trouble with trouble is that it always starts out as fun. <laughs>